James chapter 2, picking up at verse 14 here in just a minute. Uh, Not yet, though, but in just a second. Let me introduce it first. I have some things up here. So salt goes with what? Pepper, right? Salt goes with pepper. I know we just have a few people, but we could just call it out. Salt goes with pepper, right? And, um, and we could also say salt goes with food, at least in my opinion. Salt goes on everything. Pizza gets salt. Everything gets salt. Everything's better with salt and sugar. So, except pizza doesn't get sugar. Pizza gets salt. A hammer, we might think of nails, right? A hammer goes, nails go with a hammer. A hammer goes with nails. And you, you know, do that to get work done. And the reason I bring up those examples is because with our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, good works should follow. Just like nails, you know, accompany the hammer, good works follow our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I'm going to put those, put those down for now. You know, I have an interesting quote. It's from Emperor Julian. He lived about 332 A.D. through about 363 A.D., Emperor Julian. And um, he, w- he only reigned from about 361 A.D. through 363 A.D. He was against Christianity. He was not for Christianity. And in this quote, he says atheism. Now, let me clarify this. They would call Christians atheists then because they only believed in one God. You know, since Christians only believed in one God and the Romans had all these gods, Christians were called atheists. And he says here, he says, atheism, in other words, Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans, again, that's talking about Christians, as godless Galileans, because we only worship one God, the godless Galileans care not only for their own, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. It's a powerful quote. The growth of Christianity happened because Christians were just generously loving and serving other people in need. And Christians were not only serving other Christians, they were serving the Romans and the Jewish people who were not saved and the others as well. I mean, look at the quote. He says, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own but ours as well. And then he says, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He's against Christianity. And they're wondering, why has Christianity grown? Why has Christianity spread across the empire? Why has Christianity turned the world upside down? It's because of this. I'm reminded, um, last week I listened to a podcast through um, the Colson Center. If you think of Breakpoint, they have a three or four or five minute commentary every day, which you can hear on Christian radio. It goes back to Chuck Colson. And they have a longer one a couple days a week. And I'm listening to it, and they're interviewing an author of Roman history. Uh, Roman, Roman history. And he talked about, it's amazing how Christians changed the family dynamics so fast in the first few hundred years of the church. Slavery went by the wayside. The way we did war. I mean, this particular author, author was traveling through the Middle East a few years ago, and ISIS was on the move at that point, unfortunately. And he heard about the things ISIS would do when they conquered an area, uh, which, you know, I'll spare you the details, but use your imagination. And he said he was so shocked by that. But he shouldn't have been. The Romans did the same thing. 
When they conquered an area, they would, you know, take advantage of the people in that area, make them slaves, make them servants, do other bad things. But Christianity changed that. Christianity even changed warfare, changed everything. And if you think of the early church, and you know, Christians have gone through plagues as well. Breakpoint had a, a Breakpoint commentary a few um, about a month ago, and it says we aren't the first Christ followers to face times of plague and pestilence. History tells us several devastating pandemics that swept Europe in the early days of Christianity. And during all of them, Christ followers distinguished themselves by their counter-cultural responses. During the second century plague of Gavgalan, this is a second century, okay? So this is like 150, 140 AD, just over 100 years after the death, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ. During the second century plague of Gavgalan, the disease's namesake, who was also Rome's foremost physician, fled to his own country estate. All right, Rome's own physician who named this plague fled to his own estate. He wouldn't help people, fled to his own estate. Helpless before the onslaught of the unknown contagion, he and many others ran, hoping to save their own lives. But Christians didn't do that. Christians helped people. During the 3rd century, plague of Cyprian, Dionysius, bishop of Alexandria, wrote that the Romans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt. Christians, however, behaved differently. As sociologist Rodney Stark famously put it, they ran into the plague. They ran into the plague. Cyprian of Carthage, the bishop who gave his name to the third century outbreak, described the response from his fellow Christians this way. We have begun gladly to seek martyrdom while we are learning not to fear death. Heedless of the danger, he wrote, followers of Christ took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. Though their deaths likely seem pointless to many Romans, Stark argues in, in, in the book, The Triumph of Christianity, that Christians may very, may very well have decreased the death toll by administering basic nursing care to those strong enough to recover. Their work in many ways was analogous to modern healthcare. Now, certainly that was before we knew about germ spreading and all that, but the physicians and those designated whose jobs were to care for people, they left, they fled, and Christians ran, ran into the plague to help and care for those in need. The church grew by helping others, taking care of other people. The church grew that way. So I want to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through uh, 26, and I want to show you that faith and good works must go together. Faith and good works must go together. Just like salt and pepper go together, faith and good works must go together. So let's read this passage, James 2, 14 through 26. Notice all the questions. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. 
And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So I want to talk about this passage. By the way, those illustrations I shared from Breakpoint, they're not in the sermon manuscript that's online, and I just added those like literally an hour ago. So if you want a copy of those, let me know. I could um, email them to you or send you the link on the website. In verse 14, James gives an exhortation by a question. Verse 14, he gives an exhortation by a question. You look at it. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Exhortation by a question. As you look at this passage, I count six questions in this passage. James is communicating by questions, rhetorical questions. He says, if this man claims to have faith, or the translation I just read says, what use is it if someone says he has faith? So this is some individual saying they have faith. That faith is not is not observable to all at this point. He has no works. He just says, I have great faith. It's not, you know, somebody else talking about the person. It's the person making the claim. This is not observable. The read the rest of the verse. This man has no deeds. He has no works. He has no good works. His actions don't match his words. He claims to have faith, but it's not observable. What do you think? Do you think it is good if a man or woman says they are a Christian, but their life does not match up. To be a Christian means to be like Christ or little Christ. You'll see the thing that I read from the Colson Center called them Christ followers. There's a, a gathering. It's been going on for about 10 or so years that sometimes people will call themselves Christ followers instead of Christians because we have cultural Christians misrepresenting Christians now. There are too many Christians in name only. There's another question James asks. Can that faith save him? He has faith, but he doesn't have deeds or works. Can that faith save him? Now let me ask you a question. Are we saved by works? Are we saved by grace? Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we have to look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which says we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. So no one can boast. Nobody can brag. Nobody can say, I earned my salvation. I paid for it with my good works. Nobody can say that. We're saved by grace. It is a free gift of salvation. If we could earn our salvation, Jesus would not have had, had to go to the cross because we could earn it. Jesus went to the cross. It was crucified for us because we cannot earn our salvation. We are saved by grace. But Ephesians 2.10 says we are saved unto good works. Our works validate our faith. Our works show who we belong to. They show who we are living for. So what James, I believe, is really asking is, do the works validate their faith? What, what we do should show we are Christians. So in the next 10 verses, that was verse 14, in the next 10 verses, in verses 15 through 25, James gives four illustrations. Four illustrations. And one of those is a case study. Four illustrations. One is a case study. James gives us a very straightforward example. What good is it when we simply say, we'll pray, but we don't help? We say, we'll pray for you, be warm, be well fed, but we don't give the person food. We don't help with clothing. We just say, we'll pray for you. That's all we do. What good is it? I know many times 
We may not be able to physically help, and prayer is very important. And it is always, always, always important to pray for people. But we also need to, as we can, self-sacrifice to actually help people as much as we can. It's imperative that we do that. Faith is dead without actions. Christians are the best and worst witnesses for and against Christianity. Actually, I think C.S. Lewis's quote was, Christians are the best and worst testaments or testimonies of Christianity. As America's culture becomes more and more secular, it's an opportunity for Christians to shine. And that's what we need to be doing, is shining by our good works, letting our light show to everybody. Trouble is, too many Christians, or should I say alleged Christians, don't want to get their hands dirty. What do I mean? We'd much rather send a check. We'd much rather send money than actually go and help people. And we see that all across our country, right? And many are eager to do that. One way Americans are eager to send money but not get their hands dirty is that many times we are eager to pay towards a homeless shelter rather than go to a homeless shelter and actually serve. There are many reasons, right? We might say it's in a bad section of town. We might say I'm not capable of serving, and maybe that's true. We might say we're too busy. We might say it isn't my gift. We like to use that excuse all the time, don't we? It isn't my gift. There's a book called Same Kind of Different as Me. I have it right here. I had to read it my last year's seminary, and they made a book about it, which I, a movie. They made a book about it, yeah. They made a movie about it, which is actually, on, I think, on Netflix. I haven't watched it, but the book was uh, very challenging. It's a, it's a true story, and it's about a man, um, Ron Hall, in Denver Moore. Denver Moore is an uneducated, uh, poor uh, black man. He grew up as a modern-day slave in the 1940s and 50s and maybe a little bit of 60s. Totally uneducated, totally modern-day slave in the Deep South uh, entirely. When you hear his story, when you read his story, this is not somebody just making excuses. Uh, he saw murders happen as he was on these uh, farms where he was raised. You know, very rough life. And then there's Ron Hall. Ron Hall grew up as a middle-class family. Ron Hall grew up and made a fortune selling and trading artwork, uh, like very, 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 very expensive paintings and stuff like that, okay? And um, eventually their paths cross, Ron Hall makes a fortune, travels the world, gets married, has a family. He eventually, Ron Hall, the white man, eventually has an affair. And eventually, um, his wife starts going to church. He eventually, eventually goes with her. He eventually is saved. He eventually repents to her. That's all good and awesome, right? He repents to her. She forgives him. And she says, I want to go serve at a homeless shelter. And he says, I'll, I'll send money. I'm glad to send money. I'll get a checkbook out. Got millions. I'll send money. She says, no, I want to actually go to the homeless shelter. And, and, and he says, no, it's not a bad section of town. It's not, it's not good to do that. We really shouldn't actually go there. It's not safe. But they do, you know. He wanted to please his wife. So they both go to the homeless shelter. And they both start repeatedly serving at the homeless shelter. They didn't actually only send money. They went there in person. So eventually his wife says... I want to go there, and I want to take those people that we've been serving, I want to take them to a dinner and a play. Highly not recommended by those who work with the homeless, by the way. But they did it. They take them out. They rent the vehicles or use vans or whatever and take them to dinner and a play. And this man, this very poor black man, Denver Moore, kept being at each one of these things. Denver Moore is at the dinner and the play. Denver Moore is at the times they're serving. And eventually, Ron Hall... Ask Denver Moore to take him to breakfast. They go to breakfast. They go to like a Waffle House type place. 
They're all yelling out orders in the back. They're all frantic because, you know, they're making the food. Denver Moore has never been to a place like that. In fact, Denver Moore looked at Ron Hall and says, there's going to be a rumble. He's like, what? He's like, they're shouting each other back there in the kitchen. There's going to be a rumble. And obviously there wasn't. But Denver Moore asked Ron Hall and says, why are you doing this? Ron Hall says, to be your friend. Denver Moore says, I like to fish. But I notice that white people, they catch and release. I don't want to catch and release friendship. Their friendship grew. They stayed close together. Ron Hall eventually taught him to drive. He grew close to their family. Um, and eventually, Ron Hall's wife got cancer. And Denver Moore was there at the death of his wife. And eventually, they wrote this book together. They grew. They grew in faith and they grew in good works because they were, they were willing to do more than just send money. They're willing to actually go and serve. They're willing to actually go and get their hands dirty, and that's what they did. Let's go back to James' illustrations. James says he will show his faith by what he does. In verse 19, James begins to make the case that our belief doesn't mean anything without actions. Get this. He says, even the demons have orthodox belief, beliefs. Even the demons believe in one God, and they shudder. So sometimes we think we're doing good because our theology is right, our doctrine is right. And by the way, I love theology. I love doctrine. I love studying it. I love talking about it. I love debating it. I love everything about it. But James is saying even the demons have right doctrine. You have to go beyond that. You have to have good works that follow. You have to have deeds. In verses 21 through 25, James gives some Old Testament evidence. He says, Abraham's faith was verified by what he did, being willing to offer up Isaac. Verse 24, a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. Now, it appears, and I'm going to park there for just a minute, lest we become heretics here. It appears that James uses justify in a different way than Paul does. People try to put James and Paul at each other's throats. You know, Paul wrote Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. I already talked about that. Paul wrote about Abraham being justified by faith alone in Romans chapter 4. Look at Galatians. We preached through Galatians about a year ago right now. Paul was hammering hard in Galatians, you know, about how we are saved by faith, not by works. We're not saved by keeping the Old Testament law. So it seems, though, that they are in total agreement James is using the word justify in a different way than the Apostle Paul did. I like what John MacArthur says. He says, you say, well, then what does James mean when it says here in James, was not Abram our father justified by works? John MacArthur says, listen to this. Abraham was justified by faith before God, but he was justified by works before men. You hear that? James, uh, James is saying Abraham was justified by faith before God, but by works before men. You see the difference? That's the whole point James is making. Works are the only way his faith can be seen and verified as real saving faith by himself or by anyone else. All right? Our good works are the only way to make a testimony that our faith is a real saving faith to everybody else. I like that. I like the way he put that. The only way that I can know I'm genuinely redeemed is to see the pattern, I like that word, pattern of my godliness, the evidence. The only way you can know is to see my life. And that's what James is saying. James is saying our faith is validated, verified by works. Later in the message, John MacArthur says, and this is getting a little geeky, I know, but he says, by the way, just to support that perspective, the aorist indicative verb was justified, was justified, aorist indicative verb, has two general meanings. 
MacArthur says, I did a study of this because I was curious about it. When he says in verse 21, he was justified by works, the word justified has two general meanings. Number one, it means to acquit or treat as righteous. Number two, it means to vindicate, to show, or to demonstrate as righteous. How interesting. Definition number one is what Paul uses in Romans 4. In Romans 4, Paul is using definition number one of uh, of be justified, to acquit, okay? To acquit and show as righteous. But definition number two is what James uses. James is saying he was vindicated. Abraham was vindicated, shown, and demonstrated to be righteous in the act of willingness to sacrifice his son. Now, that's also not in the sermon manuscript. So if you want any, I thought this morning, I thought I need to add a little notes about that. But so if you want that in writing, let me know. I'll send that to you. But James is using that verb to justify a little bit differently than Paul did. But the point being is that we are saved by faith before God. But our works validate our faith. Our works show that, you know, that we are truly a believer in Jesus Christ. Our works show that before other people. You're not saved by works, but your works validate your faith. In verse 25, James shows that Rahab's faith was also validated by her aid to the Israelite spies. And by the way, we talked about this a lot last year when we went through Galatians. You know, we can look at Romans 4 about this. We can look at Genesis 15 when it shows that Abraham was justified right there in Genesis 15. That was long before he went to sacrifice Isaac. So sacrificing Isaac was just verifying, validating her, his, his faith and his justification. So in verse 26, we see an exhortation. Back to James chapter 2, verse 26. Verse 26 says, um, For just as the body without the spirit is dead... So also, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So we also don't have real faith if we don't have a pattern of good works following that faith. Our faith is dead. It has no life without works. And this goes back to that idea of perseverance. Think about persistence. I love this um, little excerpt from a devotional that Chuck Swindoll wrote about persistence. Chuck Swindoll says this. He says, persistence pays. Persistence pays. It's a costly investment, a costly investment. No question about it. But the dividends are so much greater than the original outlay that you almost forget the price. And if the final benefits are really significant, you wonder why you ever hesitated to begin with. A primary reason we are tempted to give up is other people. You know, the less than 20% whose major role it is in life is to encourage other people to toss in a towel. For whatever reason, those white flag specialists never run out of excuses you and I ought to use for quitting. The world's full of why sweat it experts. I'm sure Ann Mansfield Sullivan Ann Mansfield Sullivan had a host of folks telling her that that blind seven-year-old brat wasn't worth it. But Ann persisted. In spite of temper tantrums, physical abuse, mealtime madness, and even thankless parents, Ann Mansfield Sullivan persisted. In her heart, she knew that it was worth all the pain. Was it ever? Within two years, her pupil, Helen Keller, was able to read and write in Braille. Now, if you don't know the story, Helen Keller was blind and deaf. And Ann Mansfield Sullivan persisted. Get this. She ultimately, Helen Keller ultimately, graduated cum laude from Radcliffe College, 
where Miss Sullivan, get this, Miss Sullivan spelled each lecture into her hand. And Helen Keller devoted the rest of her life to the aiding, in the, de- aiding the deaf and the blind. One another, for instance, about persistence. One particular author was told that if he hadn't written a book by the age of 35, chances were good he never would. He was almost 40, I should add. There were others who reminded him that for every book published, 95 became dust-collecting manuscripts. But he persisted, even though he was warned that stories like he wanted to write weren't popular, nor were they considered worthy of top prizes in the literary field. His work, by the way, later won the Pulitzer. Hollywood hotshots also told him such a book certainly held no dramatic possibilities. But James Mickener, that's his name, James Mickener hung tough. He refused to wash the desire out of his hair as he persisted. He persisted. And he presented the public, to the public tales of the South Pacific. By the way, it became the movie, no, it became the Broadway show, um, South Pacific. Yeah, that's it, South Pacific. And by the way, the Broadway critics had warned it'll never make a musical. But he persisted. It became a book, it became a musical, it became you know, a Broadway, and it eventually became a movie. How many military battles would never have been won without persistence? Think about it. I'm watching um, right now. I've been going through Netflix. It's called World War II in Color. And they talk about things. And I was really eager in considering putting in this, you know, you think of uh, Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill's persistence in his great speech during the um, bombings of London, you know, about how they're going to fight off the Germans. We'll fight them on the land. We'll fight them on the sea. And then he ends his great speech saying, and then eventually our other English-speaking people from the New World will come in and help us. Persistence, right? Persistence. How many men and women would never have graduated from school or changed careers or in midstream or stayed together in marriage or reared a mentally disabled child? Think of the criminal cases that would never have been solved without the relentless persistence of detectives. How about the great music that would never have been finished, the grand pieces of art that would never have graced museums, cathedrals, and monuments the world over? Back behind the impeccable beauty of each work, is a dream that wouldn't die, mixed with the dogged determination of a genius of whom this indifferent world is not worthy. Think also of the speeches, the sermons, the books that that, that have shaped thinking, infused new hope, prompted fresh faith, and aroused the will to win, for went to win. For long and lonely hours away from the applause, even the awareness of the public, the one preparing that verbal missile persisted all alone with such mundane materials as dictionary, thesaurus, historical volumes, biographical data, and a desk full of other research works. The same could be said of those who labor to find cures for disease. And how about those who experiment with inventions? Persistence. Persistence. I once heard about a couple of men who were working alongside the inventor, Thomas Edison. Weary to the point of exasperation, one man sighed, what a waste. We have tried no less than 700 experiments and nothing has worked. We are not a bit better off than when we started. With an optimistic twinkle in his eye, Edison quibbed, Oh, yes, we are. We now know 700 things that don't work. We're closer than we've ever been before. With that, he rolled up his sleeves and plunged back in. I like this next line. This is still Chuck Swindoll writing. It's in his book, Come Before Winter. He says, If if necessity is the mother of invention, persistence is certainly the father. 
If necessity is the mother of invention, persistence is certainly the father. God honors it, maybe because he models it so well. His love for his people, the Jews, persists to this very day, even though they have disobeyed him more often than they have loved him in return. And just think of his patient persistence in continually reaching out to the lost. 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And how about his persistence with us, right? You and I can recall one time after another when he could have and should have wiped us out of, out of the human race, but he didn't. Why? The answer is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The one who began will continue it to the end. Being the original finisher, he will persist. Swindoll closes this little part saying, I'm comforted to know he won't be talked out of a plan that has to do with developing me. I need help, don't you? So my encouragement and challenge to all of us is that we persist in good works. Our faith is validated by our good works. We persist in good works, and when we fail... We persist in repentance. I think repentance goes a long way, especially with our children and grandchildren and those who know us best. And, of course, the first step in repentance is repenting and turning our life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So I want to ask all those here and those watching, do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Some of you maybe have believed in him but have never surrendered to him, never made him Lord of your life. Some of you maybe have never believed in him or surrendered to him and made him Lord of your life. Where are you at with Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The Bible can be summed up with the acronym that spells gospel. Those in my church family have heard me say this. God created us to be with him. We see that in Genesis 1 through 2. God wants a relationship with us, but our sins, they separate us from God. We don't think our sins are that bad. That's because we are comparing ourselves with our neighbor or friend or coworker. We need to compare ourselves with God's standard. God's standard is found in the Bible. And one sin separates us from him because he's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect. One sin separates us from God. God created us to be with him. Our sins separate us from God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. We see that in Genesis 4 through Malachi 4 through the Old Testament. Our good works don't cover sin. That creates a dilemma. God loves us and wants a relationship with us. So God took action, paying the price for our sin. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus took the wrath of God in your place, my place, the world's place. Jesus took our hell. And everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. And life that's eternal means being with Jesus forever. Revelation 22.5. Jesus gives us a fuller life now, complete life now, abundant life now. But he gives us eternal life forever. Many times we think our Christian life begins at death. No, it, it really begins now. Jesus impacts our life now. We receive the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. The Holy Spirit helps us understand, interpret, apply the Word of God. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures to us. We receive the church, the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is described as our comforter. In John 15, you know, we, we were called to live with Jesus. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. The Bible uses four verbs to describe our commitment to Christ. Confess, believe, trust, commit. Confess, believe, trust, commit. We confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. Believe in Jesus as the only Savior. Trust in him and commit to him. Have you done that? If you've never committed your life to Christ, I encourage you today is a day of salvation. 
Maybe you believed in Jesus years ago, but you know you're not living for him. We talk about works validating faith, and you're thinking, ooh, I've been kind of been going against God, not going towards God. In that case, I encourage you to rededicate your life to Christ. Recommit your life to Christ. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes in prayer. If you're one of those and you think you need to turn your life over to Jesus, I invite you to say this prayer with me. The prayer is not magic. It's not a formula. It's just telling Jesus what you're doing. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm trusting in you as Lord and Savior, committing my life to you. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with somebody today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. God cares about every person, and he wants everybody to turn to him and follow him. It's a free gift of salvation. If you have questions about God and the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I'm going to turn it over to Steve for the closing hymn now, in closing prayer. Amen. Uh, just as-